Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The seasons will be changing soon, and with that comes less daylight and cooler temps, making it the perfect time to snuggle in on the couch to catch up on the must-see shows and must-read books. Today, where we live, we want to hear what you'll be watching, reading, or streaming this fall. Have you found a new show to stream, or are you eagerly waiting for a favorite series to return? In a few minutes, NPR's TV critic Eric Deggins joins us to talk about what to watch. Although, spoiler, Eric tweeted recently the fall TV season has left him somewhat underwhelmed. What about you? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, coming up later, Roxanne Cody from RJ Booksellers in Madison and Middletown joins us with her book recommendations. But first, Eric Deggins is here on Zoom, NPR's TV critic. Eric, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so everyone's been talking about Abbott Elementary Season 2 is premiering tomorrow on ABC and Hulu. I wanted to play a, a little bit of a trailer for listeners who may not be watching Abbott Elementary. Melissa, we don't have enough kids for a full third grade class, so now they go to you. And how many extra kids? Ten. I mean, great. Melissa, are you okay? Being a teacher is being asked to show up every day and try our best. And you heard Waterbury, Connecticut native Cheryl Lee Ralph at the very end of that montage. So, Eric, tell us about this upcoming season. Sure. Um, we've got a, some interesting shows coming up. I mean, what's interesting to me is that um, the TV industry is kind of moving away from this cycle where the fall was where you expected a sort of a deluge of new material um, because so for so long, um, we sort of paid attention to the broadcast network's cycle of programming, and that defined the rhythms of the TV industry. And uh, for broadcast television, um, their TV season starts um, uh, usually in the third week of September. I think uh, it's it, it was yesterday and this year. And then it goes until um, mid-May. And, you know, that's how they sell their advertising. And, you know, that's how they plan um, how long TV shows are going to run and uh, when they go into reruns or when they use sub substitute uh, shows. So... For so long, you know, the whole TV industry just followed that pattern and cable TV uh, channels would debut their new shows out of the way of the fall because they knew all the attention would go to the broadcast networks. Well, what's happening now is that um, there's many fewer shows, new shows being debuted on the broadcast networks, and there's so much more attention being paid to streaming. So, you know, for example, this year, the two of the biggest shows on television debuted before the fall the um game of thrones prequel uh house of the dragon and uh the um lord of the rings prequel rings of power you know both of those 
uh, debuted, um, you know, well before what we would consider the start of the fall TV season. So I think the challenge now, especially for the broadcast channels, is to get people's attention after the biggest shows have already started airing and people are talking about them. And we'll be talking about both of those shows coming up in a little bit. Uh, but getting back to Abbott Elementary, uh, you know, in Connecticut, we're really excited because Cheryl Lee Ralph is a Waterbury native. And what a speech uh, coming out of the Emmys uh, last Monday. She took home Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Comedy Series. This was a significant win for her and the production. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, uh, from what I've heard from what Quinta Brunson has said, the the creator and star of the show has said in subsequent interviews is that Shirley Ralph was not expecting to win. Um, And so um, I don't know if she had that prepared or if that was something that just kind of came to her in the moment. But she sang um, a verse from this Diane Reeves song um, and, and then gave a really eloquent speech about, you know, believing in yourself. You know, the thing uh, what what's so poignant about her story is that, you know, she, of course, has starred in a, um, a lot of really great TV shows and films. She was on Broadway and Dreamgirls in the 80s. <laughs> you know, she has this really long running career, but there was always a sense that, you know, maybe she was underappreciated. And I think particularly when you had uh, black actresses. Um, you know, sort of starting their careers in the 80s and the 90s, it was hard for them to get the kind of roles that would uh, allow them to to win an Emmy. So to have her, you know, last in the business this long, um, you know, get a, a, a showcase role that, you know, could provide the opportunity for her to win an Emmy and then to have her actually win it was just an amazing story. And it's also, you know, I've been, I interviewed uh, Quinta um, last month, and we had a feature story that went up the day after, um, you know, they had their victories at the Emmys. And and Quinta is is somebody who, who loves to showcase other performers and uh, showcase performers that might surprise the audience. And so, you know, she was really enjoying the fact that Abbott Elementary was such a great pl- uh, platform for Shirley Ralph and some of the other performers on the show. And for her, it's a way to pay it forward because people like Shonda Rhimes, who created Scandal, and Issa Rae, who created Insecure and helped executive produce a Black Lady sketch show, they were um, instrumental in helping Quinta uh, when she was developing her career. So um, it's just a really nice story of everybody kind of supporting each other and paying it forward. And then the result is Emmy Gold. And, you know, you you couldn't write a better ending for that story. So I got to ask, uh, with the controversy, uh, when Quinta Brunson was announced as winner for writing the pilot of the popular sitcom, uh, how uh, host uh, Jimmy Kimmel stayed on the ground during her <coughs> speech. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so um, Jimmy Kimmel and um, 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 I'm blanking on his name now, um, the, another Will on it. Uh, we're supposed to present the award and Will Arnett dragged Jimmy Kimmel uh, out and Jimmy was laying on the floor and he wasn't moving. And the the joke was that, uh, you know, Jimmy had been so depressed from getting beaten by John Oliver yet again in the talk show category that he uh, hit the bar a little too hard and, <laughs> and he had passed out. 
So, um, so you know, they announced the nominees and then they announced Quinta had won. And uh, instead of ending the bid by getting up, Jimmy Kimmel just um, laid there. Um, and, and really, Will Arnett had to pull him off of the stage uh, after the whole presentation was done. He didn't get up at all. So Quinta came out. And she looked over at him and, and said, hey, Jimmy, I won. And he gave her a thumbs up. And then she she gave her uh, acceptance uh, speech. And some people felt like because it was such a historic moment, um, you know, she is the youngest Black woman to be nominated for these kinds of awards. And she'd already made history by being the first Black woman to be nominated uh, in three comedy categories uh, in the same year that, you know, he he stole a bit of her moment by, you know, laying on the floor and, and continuing the bit. When I saw it, I mean, um, I, I'm, I, I know I know Jimmy a little bit, and I, I've seen that he was uh, supportive of Abbott Elementary from the minute that the show debuted. Um, I don't think he was intending to steal her moment. I think the, I think that's the way a comic's brain works, where they thought it would be funny to just continue the bit uh, through her acceptance speech and then have somebody pull him off. Like he never stood up. Uh, but, but uh, I, I don't think he realized the optics of what that would look like. And I don't think he appreciated um, the historic nature of her win um, because I think she was only the second black woman to win that award. And the first black woman wasn't that long ago, Lena Waithe. <laughs> so um so, so he was kind of stepping on history in a way that I don't think he intended. Um, but, um, you know, a couple of days later, Quinta Brinson came on Jimmy Kimmel Live and he apologized seriously and profusely to her face. And I think he realizes that he messed up. And this is, this is the core of um, issues when we talk about diversity sometimes is that people just don't understand sometimes how important moments are, how important making history is. And, and when they should sort of get out of the way and allow that history to happen rather than, um, you know, insist that it happen in a way that they're used to. Mm. You're hearing Eric, Eric Deggins here on Where We Live, NPR TV critic, as we talk about what's streaming, what's coming up uh, this <coughs> fall season. We'd love to hear what you're watching. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, getting back to what you were saying about streaming, we heard uh, from someone on Twitter who writes, I'm waiting for Yellowstone to come back. Such an uncomfortable <laughs> show, but I can't look away. So let's talk about this show from Paramount. Yeah, so it's, uh, I think it's the most popular show on cable. It's one of the most popular shows on television these days. It stars Kevin Costner as the patriarch of this family that owns a, a huge um, plot of land um, that, um, that covers a, a big part of Yellowstone uh, National Park. Um, and, and it's something of a soap opera. You know, I, I will um, admit that I have not uh, kept a close eye on this show simply because, you know, I don't love it as much as a lot of people do. Um, and uh, one of the things that people noted, for example, is that it wasn't nominated for em any Emmy Awards. Um, the One of the spinoff series, 1883, uh, which I think is, is uh, a better show, uh, did get nominated for a couple of minor Emmy Awards, but Yellowstone didn't. And, um, you know, I've always felt that the show could be a little better than it is, but it has it has a ton of fans and uh, people are waiting for it to come back. It's going to come back a little later this year. And, um, you know, uh, it'll be interesting to see if um, major show major award ceremonies like the Emmys and the Golden Globes will ever pay attention to it 
um, simply because I think, um, you know, it, it isn't quite at the level of, you know, most of the um, dramas that are being considered for major awards, but it is uh, really popular. So, you know, how long can you give out a TV award and not acknowledge uh, one of the most popular shows uh, on the dial? And I think Yellowstone is premiering, I believe, in November. That would be the fifth season uh, premiering yeah. on Paramount. Um, what about Atlanta? That just premiered on Thursday, the fourth and final season. For listeners who don't know about this show, can you tell them about it? Sure. So this <clears throat> featured uh, Donald Glover um, as, um, you know, um, he, he's a young man in Atlanta. He had left uh, Princeton um, uh, before graduating and came back to Atlanta and seemed to be sort of struggling to find his way when the show started. Um, now we're at a point where he's managing uh, a relative of his who's an up and coming rapper and is doing pretty well, actually. Um, and, you know, all of him, he and his friends are all doing well. And the um, key Stansfield plays this, you know, sort of oddball friend of theirs who's almost like the Kramer of the group. And Zazie Beats plays um, his ex who's also the mother of his uh, child. And, um, you know, we've seen this sort of group of black millennials kind of evolve over four seasons. And now they're to the point where they are, are doing okay in some respects, um, but they're, st they're still having to contend with sort of the racism of the world. And it's presented in a very absurdist kind of way. So one of the first episodes back, um, you know, uh, Donald Glover's characters with Zazie Beetz's character and they're in a mall um, and running some errands and they suddenly realize um, that they're kind of trapped. They can't figure out how to get out of there and they're constantly running into exes <laughs> who are also trapped in the mall with them. <laughs> and so every time they turn around, hey, how you doing? Oh, yeah. And, you know, that uncomfortable conversation you had with somebody you used to date was just having it was happening over and over and over again to both of them. Uh, and then eventually it gets resolved in a way that is um, kind of interesting and brings the group uh, back together. And um, uh, and and that's sort of a hallmark that, uh, of uh, uh, the a lot of the episodes we're going to see in this final season where you see these disparate stories and you think they're not necessarily connected. And then by the end of the episode, uh, they bring them together in a way that's surprising. What I love about the show is that it's just pioneered different ways of telling stories, particularly for shows that star Black characters and are centered on Black culture. And so often we have been told that those stories have to be told a certain way or they won't be successful. Um, and and you know, what, I, what I think Donald Glover and his um, crew uh, have, have done is push the boundaries of that and talk about, you know, you know, messing with timelines and, and you know, they, they had... Um, in the first season, they had a situation where the rapper was uh, that uh, that Don Glover's character manages was playing in a celebrity basketball game, and and Justin Bieber was going to be a part of it. And when the Justin Bieber character appeared, he was being played by a black person, <laughs> and it was their way of saying, "How would the world react if a black person did all the things that Justin Bieber did when he was super famous?" <laughs> so. Um, you know, it, it, the show is always finding a way to surprise you and introduce twists and make you think about things. And that's continuing in the final season. So um, in a way, I'm going to be sad to see it go. But in a way, it started something that's been picked up by other TV shows. So in a way, it's kind of the perfect time for them to bring the show in for a landing. 
You're hearing NPR TV cr- critic Eric Deggins here where we live as we talk about uh, what's coming up this uh, fall season, uh, whether you're watching something new uh, on the stream or you're watching something on, I guess, the big three, as we used to call them, Eric, way back when, NBC, ABC, <laughs> and CBS. Uh, you're, date, you're dating yourself. You're <laughs> I terrible. am. I am. Uh, you know, what's interesting, too, is when you think about all of the stuff that's out there to watch, and it doesn't have to be new, but something can happen that can get people uh, to turn it on. And we saw that with uh, the passing of Queen Elizabeth, uh, Netflix revealing viewership for the first season of The Crown had shot up to the platform's top 10 last week. Uh, I wonder if you can comment on that. Well, um, one of the things that I've been saying is that even though Americans uh, seem to have a fascination with the royal family, um, they also don't know anything about the royal family. <laughs> in particular, they don't know anything about the history of the monarchy in Britain. So uh, it didn't surprise me that a bunch of people flocked to the crown because it's uh, an entertaining and compelling way to um, revisit stories from the history of the, um, um, the, the, the queen's uh, ascension to the throne and her early reign um, that a lot of Americans didn't know anything about. Um, that's one of the things that was compelling to me when I first um, watched The Crown when it debuted years ago was that I didn't I didn't know a lot of these stories. And you know, you 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 describe to British people or even Canadian citizens, you know, uh, some of the stories in The Crown, and they go, "Well, you know, we knew we knew those stories." Well, you know, we didn't know those stories here in America and and in and in other parts of the world. So I think that's one reason why um, you know um, people were flocking to the crown because even though um, Queen Elizabeth has been a part of our lives, you know, I mean, she's been queen for longer than I've been alive. She was queen for longer than I was alive. Most most people were alive. Uh, Americans um, didn't really know much about the history of that family, particularly early in her reign. Um, it, so it, that's the odd paradox of America and the royal family is that um, for some reason uh, we are always intensely interested in them and in, a, in an odd way they are um, like a soap opera for some people um, but we don't really know their history we don't really know what's going on there and we don't really feel the kind of attachment that I think maybe people might feel if they were actually subjects of the um, of the monarchy. So um, it's a it's a complex thing. I, I wish that uh, some of the coverage had been a little more nuanced. Uh, you know, unlike other people, I'm not griping about the amount of the coverage, you know, given that she had been a monarch for 70 years, you sort of expected it. Uh, but but I, I do I do quibble with the superficiality of a lot of the coverage I was seeing on television, especially. Um, and And I feel like we're only now starting to ask um, the questions that uh, we should have been asking, you know, in the hours after her death about, you know, all the wealth that this family is going to transfer that won't be taxed, um, how um, people feel in in India and in Africa in places where, um, you know, people were subjugated by the monarchy uh, and where the queen stands as a symbol of something else. Um, You know, it's hard. It's always hard to talk about the uh, disappointing parts of a person's life when they die and and when they're the more prominent they are the harder it is to face those uncomfortable truths um 
but um you know i think some i, I think the, the the coverage you know in in wanting to acknowledge her historic reign uh sometimes the coverage uh didn't do justice uh, to some of the thorny questions that her death has raised and the thorny questions that her reign that rose during her reign and um you know hopefully some point at some point we'll we'll really uh, explore those especially you know in cable even in cable television and morning television where i've seen some of the worst coverage maybe they'll get around to sort of talking about some of this stuff in a way that makes sense and we know Netflix paused production out of respect for Queen Elizabeth's passing, the fifth season premiering in November. And not to be confused with The Crown, there's also Monarch, a new Fox series starring Susan Sarandon. We're going to play a clip from the mysterious opening scene. Okay, we have time for one last question. Dottie, 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 Dottie. You've been the queen of country music for nearly 40 years. In all that time, any regrets? Regrets? No, ma'am, not a one. Sorry, that's all the time we have. You'll see Dottie at the music house. So tell us about this show. Yeah, it was kind of hard to tell from that clip, but (laughs) when she said regrets, they had a montage of uh, something that happened from, from her past that she probably actually did regret. So, um, hold, hold on just a moment. I'm sorry. I have a pet, uh, here right next to me. Who's, uh, getting a little excited, but, um, yeah, Monarch is the story of, uh, a country music dynasty, uh, that, that is led by Susan Sarandon's character. And there's this question of who is going to succeed her. Um, Will uh, it be the the daughter who wants to succeed or played by Anna Friel, who people don't take that seriously, or will it be uh, a, the another daughter who people think is more talented? And, um, you know, it, it, for those who uh, TV fans will remember that there's a show called uh, there was a show called Nashville that was on TV about 10 years ago that um, that probably was a better example of this, you know, like a, a really well-made uh, nighttime drama about uh, the ins and outs of the country music industry. This is more soapy and more, you know, fantastical. I, I would, I would say it, it reminded me a lot of Empire, the uh, the um, the drama that uh, Fox had years ago about um, a family that ran a hip hop empire. So, um, you know, I've, I've only seen a couple of episodes of, of it and uh, time will tell um, whether the storytelling uh, gets elevated. But the first two episodes I saw were pretty, pretty soapy. So, you know, if you're if you're into that kind of thing, you know, uh, you might like it. Uh, but but if you're seeking a more realistic drama, you, you'll probably be uh, disappointed. You're hearing Eric Deggins here where we live, NPR's TV critic, as we talk about uh, what uh, is coming up or premiering uh, either on your streaming device or on uh, your television. Uh, we want to hear what you're watching now or looking forward to this fall. After the break, we're going to talk about what's new in fantasy and sci-fi series. Eric, we're hearing from a listener who wants to hear what you're looking forward to as a sci-fi and comics fan in the fall TV movie season. So we'll get to that right after the break. Also, a remake of a hit late 80s series. Any Quantum Leap fans out there? You can join us too. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. 
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we want to hear what you'll be watching, reading, or streaming this fall. Have you found a new show to stream? Or are you eagerly waiting for a favorite series to return? Julie tweeted, I'm very excited that HBO's Los Espookies is back for a second season. This is a primarily Spanish-language comedy with English subtitles. It follows the adventures of one horror and gore enthusiast who forms a unique business that conjures thrills and chills for a variety of clients. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. On Zoom with us, Eric Deggins, NPR TV critic. So I, I read that tweet from a listener who wants to hear uh, you know, what you're looking forward to when we think about uh, sci-fi and, and fantasy. And let's start with um, we, the Amazon Prime video series, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. Uh, before I hear you talk about it, you recently wrote a piece headlined Why Black Characters and Rings of Power and Little Mermaid Make Fantasy Better. Um, you talk about the discussion around even Halle Bailey's casting as Ariel in The Little Mermaid. So tell us about that piece and, and the reaction you got, Eric. Sure. Um, so there's been, you know, um, both, you know, all these all these major sort of fantasy uh, products that have uh, come out recently, the Game of Thrones prequel, the Lord of the Rings prequel, and the Little, the Little, Little Mermaid uh, reboot have all um, had significant roles that were played by people of color. And um, it's inserted people of color into franchises that uh, previously uh, had seemed to be pretty white. And so uh, some... Fan, some people who claim to be fans of these franchises have pushed back and in, implied that in some way the multicultural casting has somehow devalued the story or devalued the um, the franchise in some way. And so, you know, what I tried to point out in my piece, I started out by, um, you know, talking about a letter I'd gotten from a listener who had heard my review of Rings of Power, the Lord of the Rings show that Amazon's doing where I'd said in like the second to last paragraph that I'm, I'm, I was still a little uncomfortable with how white this world was and that, you know, having a few key characters be played by people of color wasn't really enough to challenge the white centrism of the story. And, um, and, you know, this person sort of pushed back and, and, and suggested that, um, the story was white centered because the author J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, um, uh, first wrote these books a long time ago. The Hobbit came out in 1937. Lord of the Rings came out in the 50s, uh, and that that's why they were white centered. But 
the thing I pointed out in my column is that whenever um, these stories are reinvented for a new audience and for a new age, they are they always reflect the time in which they are reinvented as much as they reflect the time or the circumstances they're trying to depict. So when you when you when you do a new version of Lord of the Rings, one of the things you do is you kind of bring modern sensibilities to it. And one of the things that we're doing right now um, in 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 pop culture is that we're trying really hard to root out white centrism and this unfair emphasis on white culture. And one way you can do that is by, um, you know, allowing actors of color to have significant roles in these franchises because, you know, um, um, you know, Peter Jackson created, you know, six films uh, connected to the Lord of the Rings franchise. And because they were so white centered, there were um, really no actors of color who could have significant roles um, in, in in those films. And who knows, you know, they might have missed a wonderful performer or a wonderful performance uh, because um, they cast the, the films according to the typical frame that we've always had on these fantasy shows uh, where they were supposedly inspired by medieval British medieval culture. So everybody has a British accent and all the actors are white that, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. You're talking about a fantasy made up world. Uh, why can't you make up people of color in it? <laughs> so, uh, and the reason why people resist that of course, is because, um, you know, there, there's a real attempt to marginalize people of color in these stories um, that reflects the way people of color are marginalized in real life. And I'm always trying to talk about how um, the pop culture that we consume reflects the dynamics that we're dealing with in real life. And so this pushback, this sort of knee-jerk resistance to diversifying um, thing, uh, shows like the, you know, The Little Mermaid and, and Rings of Power is really just reflective of people's knee-jerk response to diversity in general in real life. And if we can't figure out how to grapple with it and deal with it and sort through these issues in a way that makes sense, then how, you know, how are we going to be expected to deal with, you know, real world concerns and real life concerns? And so, you know, um, one of the things I was just trying to impress in the piece is that um, we are you, people who make uh, TV shows and films are always um, negotiating modern sensibilities and, 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 and reflecting them in their work. So it makes all kinds of sense that any modern TV show or film about the Lord of the Rings franchise or about the Little Mermaid or about Marvel characters or about, you know, anything in fantasy or, or um, science fiction would be more diverse because that's where we are right now as a, as a, as a nation and as a society. And the fact that there are people out there that have problems with that is, is, is really sad. And it should inspire some introspection on their part <laughs> instead of them uh, attacking, right. uh, you know, producers of these shows or attacking people like me who are trying to write about these issues. It really says something more about them. And attacking uh, the actors that play these characters. So right. The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, again, premiered and it has a diverse cast. And Ismael Cruz Cordova is the first person of color to play a major elf character in the Lord of the Rings production. He's from Puerto Rico, and he said he's dealt with, quote, pure and vicious hate speech since his casting was announced two years ago, Eric. That's really troubling to hear. 
Yeah, it's troubling to hear, but it unfortunately is not new. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Boyega, who um, played uh, a black man who played a stormtrooper in the new Star Wars movies, said that he right. received a lot of um, racist vitriol when uh, it was revealed that he was going to be part of the franchise. Kelly Marie Tron, an, an Asian woman, was also in Star Wars, said she got so much um, vitriol that she quit social media. Uh, Moses Ingram, a black woman who played um, a significant character in the Obi-Wan Kenobi Disney Plus series, also said that um, a Lucasfilm told her to expect a racist backlash when the when the episodes drop. And uh, but but I didn't I didn't think they really did much to protect her from it. Uh, and they didn't do much to to short circuit the fan reaction. You know, um, I wrote a column back when Obi-Wan Kenobi debuted and Moses Ingram's character was revealed and this sort of backlash to her started to happen. I wrote a column where I said, you know, the the people who run these franchises need to do a better job of protecting the actors of color that they are casting in these roles. If they are going to challenge, I mean, obvious, it's obvious that these franchises have been pretty white centered before these actors came along, because if they weren't, this wouldn't be a controversy. <laughs> so, so it's obvious that they're changing something significant for a lot of people. And I, I wish the people who ran the franchise, their 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 um, the modus operandi up until now seems to have been to uh, sit back, put the product out, and then when the damaging things happen, it's it's up to the actors of color to admit that they're being harassed, and then they get support. And 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 it just struck me that maybe it's time to have these conversations before the pieces even come out, uh, so that um, it's made plain, so that the 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 white actors who are acting with these um, uh, performers of color just say pro proactively, preemptively, we stand behind this person. Don't even start with this racist nonsense. Mm-hmm. You know, um, just bring up the subject. I mean, you know, one of the uh, yeah, I write a lot about race and media, and one of the things I find is that, um, you know, uh, people of color, we're used to talking about race all the time because it affects our lives so much all the time. Um, white people are not as used to that and are maybe more inclined to sort of uh, avoid these conversations. But when you're casting a person of color in a franchise that has been white-centered and you know that the fans, that there are some fans who are going to be abusive towards that person, you should do what you can do to protect them from that so that they, so that it's not on them to go public with, with the abuse that they're getting from, from some uh, people. And, and it's not up to them to sort of bear their scars in order to get support from people. So I'm hoping that we're evolving a different way of dealing with this stuff because there's just been so many, you know, like I said, you know, star Wars and now, uh, the Lord of the Rings franchise and now the Little Mermaid. Uh, and, and there's been grousing about diversity in the Marvel universe as well. You know, we finally reached a point where there's so many products out there and so many actors of color who are trying to, uh, you know, deliver these pioneering roles. You know, they should be protected. They should be elevated. They should be uh, supported. And, and, and this discussion needs to be ongoing. So with any luck, you know, things will change a little mm. and and these people who are reacting negatively will be drowned out by all the fans who are being supportive and, and helping these artists um, do what is what is some pretty amazing 
and uh, and compelling work. Now, Eric, you also reviewed uh, the prequel series. I'm wondering if you can give us a, a short summary of, of your take so far of Rings of Power. Well, Rings of Power, um, this is on track to be the most expensive um, TV show ever created. Um, Amazon spent $250 million just to get their rights um, to to create it, um, you know, um, seven or five years ago. So um, it, it is a beautiful looking uh, program and it is really detailed, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and there's a lot going on. Um, I do feel as if, and, and, and I think um, this is a problem that Rings of Power shares with uh, House, House of the Dragon, the, the Game of Thrones spinoff. Um, there's there's been such a focus on the special effects and the grandeur of it and the money that they're spending on these um, these products that um, I'm not sure that they're creating the kind of compelling characters that will pull you through these stories. And I'm not sure that they have done as uh, as great a job in crafting stories that are um, easy to access and that people can kind of jump into and immediately know what's going on and feel comfortable and then learn more about this world. I don't think they did a great job. I mean, when the first episode just kind of plunged you into all of this exposition to explain, um, you know, where things stood before the main story of this, of the, um, the, the series even got engaged. So, and that's the problem you always have with the Lord of the Rings universe. There's so much detail and there's so many things to know. And you're trying to create something that will speak to fans who have read, you know, every Tolkien book, but also will speak to people who don't know anything uh, about the world. And that's always a very tough thing to negotiate. But um, my sort of knee-jerk reaction and just having seen three or four episodes of the series is that, um, you know, I, I, I feel as if the characters aren't quite as compelling and I feel like every episode they get a little closer to paring away all of the distractions and giving us a more, a leaner, more interesting story. That is the story that we're really going to engage with once the, the the show gets going. I, you know, I feel three or four episodes in, I, I haven't even really seen the the actual um, story like fully engaged yet. Right. So, and, and Eric, we're almost out of time, but I got to sure. ask you quickly about Quantum Leap again premiering last sure. night on NBC. This is a uh, from thirty years ago. I remember the Quantum Leap series. Uh, what's what are your uh, your quick thoughts on on this re- this uh, reboot? Well, yeah, it's really interesting. They decided to try and and do a, a show where, um, you know, if you remember the original um, Quantum Leap, Scott Bakula played um, a scientist who, um, through an accident, wound up in this process where he would leap into other people's bodies in the past. And he would leap into their bodies in the past because they, they needed help doing something, achieving something. Uh, and and the idea was if he helped enough people, he might get back uh, to his present. And um, Scott Bakula ha- has, has said publicly he doesn't have anything to do with this new show. So so that was a little bit of a of a problem for them. But they but but basically they've created this show where there's a bunch of new people, a new scientist, and 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 new support team uh, that tried to recreate his experiments and maybe try to find him. And uh, and for some reason, um, the 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 lead physicist decided to leap 
before they had really tested the technology. And then once he left, his his memory was erased. And so um, part of the show is him trying to figure out why did he leap? And part of the show is uh, is uh, him trying to figure out can can they get him back home? And then part of the show um, eventually maybe can they find Scott Bakula's character? And and I think maybe they're hoping at some point if they if they do enough quality episodes, maybe they can convince Scott Bakula <laughs> to to join the cast or to make a cameo appearance. Nice. Um, they already in the in the pilot you see an image of his face. Mm-hmm. So um, so it, 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 there's a lot of callbacks. Uh, to the original series, but Scott Bakula right now is not going to appear in it. That's Eric Deggins, NPR TV critic. Uh, Thanks for your hot takes. We always appreciate it. We're going to link again to the shows uh, to watch from Eric and the host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Just search at where we live. Eric, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public. After the break, we switch to books. What are you reading? Roxanne Cody from RJ Julia Booksellers joins us after the break. And you can too, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We want to hear your book recommendations. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Linda tweeted she's reading Muse, uncovering the hidden figures behind art history's masterpieces by Ruth Millington and Black Gotham by Carla Peterson about elite African-American families in Brooklyn in the late 1800s. For some more book recommendations, joining us now on the phone is Roxanne Cody, owner of R.J. Julia Booksellers in Madison and Middletown, also CEO of Just the Right Book, a personalized book of the month subscription service. Roxanne, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Now, we've only got about 10 minutes, so I know you've got some great recommendations for us. Can we start with Signal Fires from a Connecticut author? Yes. So this is uh, a new fiction book by Danny Shapiro. She's a a Connecticut author. I love all her books. Uh, This is, she's written a number of memoirs. This fiction book, it's called Signal Fires is a must-read. Anybody I have loaned a galley to, you know, the copies that come out before the book is published, which will pub in October, is just raves about it. And what she does is there's an accident that opens uh, the story, and it's about the ramifications on two families and all their members. So what What you learn from this book, which is what I love about reading fiction, is you become very attached to these characters, despite understanding their frailties. It gives you a sense of humanity. And I I cannot rave about this book enough. It's Signal Fires by Danny Shapiro. Uh, We'll have an event with her that will also be a recording uh, for the podcast. But I encourage everybody to read the book. And that's out October 18th, Roxanne? Yes, exactly. Now, I love a good mystery. I understand uh, there's a a book out commissioned by the Agatha Christie estate. Tell us about it. Yeah, so this is really fun. what What they do is they get 12 writers 
to write a to channel Agatha Christie to channel Agatha Christie's Miss Marple. You know, so it's that same quaint English village problem solver, but it's got a contemporary way of writing. And uh, Andrew Brennan, who's our uh, head buyer, says that this book is just superb. Are you a a mystery fan? (laughs) You know what? I'm not. What I try to do is I try to read like one or two mysteries a year just so I know what the genre is. So the one I picked up this summer is called The It Girl by Ruth Ware uh, because she has a lot of fans. And I get why people love mysteries. I mean, you're totally immersed. You're there. You're trying to figure out the solution. And The It Girl accomplishes it. So I was thinking I'm going to pick up this Miss Marple book. I love it. You know, I like those, too, because, uh, you know, as a journalist, I'm inundated with all the nonfiction books. But I know you love nonfiction, Roxanne. Do you have a suggestion for us there? I do. I am obsessed um, with this book. It's called The Sewing Girl's Tale, A Story of Crime and Consequences in Revolutionary America. So this book is set in revolutionary New York City. A young 17-year-old is sexually assaulted by one of the wealthiest guys in New York City at that time. And just to put perspective, there were 40,000 people in New York City uh, in those days. And what was unlikely in those times, she brought charges against him. And uh, the same issues that would happen today in bringing charges, like did she ask for it, was she in the wrong place, you know, was it bad judgment on her part, led to his being acquitted. But her stepfather used the law about reducing the value of your property, and sadly his property was his stepdaughter, but nonetheless he won. And uh, this rascal bad guy ended up in debtor's prison. So I'm telling you the story, which makes you think, well, now that I know the story, do I really need to read the book? Yes, you do. (laughs) Because it is steeped in that time, which is fascinating. You learn about the culture in that time, but some of, some of the issues feel contemporary. A 17 year old girl with outstanding, a very wealthy, very connected man doing whatever he can to make sure he's not held accountable for this action and other actions he had been involved in. Um, So it's called The Sewing Girl's Tale by John Wood Sweet. And for anybody who wants to listen in, I'm going to be doing an interview, a virtual event with him uh, Tuesday at 5 uh, which you can sign up through R.J. Joy, which I'm really excited about. Now, we can't uh, forget to mention poetry. I know you have a great book that you want to recommend for our listeners, Roxanne. Yeah. Billy Collins is, you, you cannot not be in a good mood and read Billy Collins' poetry. And he's got a new one coming out in November uh, called Musical Tables. And it's his version of haiku, And I dare you to read this and not stay in a fantastic mood or or get into a great mood. Well, I'm going to need to read that after I read Sewing Girl's Tale, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, see, here's what we're doing. 
we have a selection here for every mood. And one of the things I thought about is, uh, because it's airing on Thursday, I had interviewed Tina Brown, who wrote the Palace Papers about the royalty. And for if you're one of the over 4 billion people that watched the funeral, uh, Tina Brown knows everything about the royals. So you could either read the book. It's called The Palace Papers or listen to the podcast. Uh, it's just the right book. <laughs> she knows everything. Well, it's always a pleasure to hear from you, Roxanne Cody, again, owner of R.J. Julia Booksellers in Madison and Middletown, also CEO of Just the Right Book, a personalized book of the month subscription service. We'll be sure to add your list to our web post at ctpublic.org slash where we live. Roxanne, thank you for your recommendations. My pleasure. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. Coming up tomorrow, what do superagers have in common? We look into the latest in longevity research, and are you in your 80s or 90s? We want to hear from you. That conversation tomorrow. <laughs>